I'm Ray Suarez, and this is America Abroad. This hour, immigration and the global talent search. Innovation is one of those magic words. We all want to be a part of it, and the United States wants to be on the leading edge of it. One way is to attract the best entrepreneurial talent on the planet to work here. But it's been a great surprise, really, given that the U.S. is home of the most dynamic innovation and of immigration as almost as a national creed, that the U.S. is really a laggard in this respect. Just how big are the economic advantages of immigrant entrepreneurs? According to President Obama, in a recent speech on immigration reform, the advantages are impressive. After all, immigrants helped start businesses like Google and Yahoo. They created entire new industries that in turn created new jobs and new prosperity for our citizens. In recent years, one in four high-tech startups in America were founded by immigrants. One in four new small business owners were immigrants, including right here in Nevada. Folks who came here seeking opportunity and now want to share that opportunity with other Americans. But we all know that today we have an immigration system that's out of date and badly broken. The president and the Congress are currently trying to hammer out a massive immigration reform bill. Many experts, meanwhile, suggest immigrant entrepreneurship has plateaued in the U.S., while other countries are doing more to attract the best and the brightest. If you look at the trend of uh, new firm formation, it's been down since the recession. We used to have around 600,000 firms formed a year. It's fallen to around 400,000. Uh, that's due to lack of capital. It's obviously due to lack of risk-taking. But we can use all the entrepreneurs we can get. What should we do about this? Over the next hour, we'll examine some options, lifting immigration caps on highly skilled workers. Until you get your green card, it's unbelievable how much it drags on. You have to give up so much. Having to go through all this and knowing that, you know, there's still a lot ahead and it just wears you down. Making a bigger commitment to train our own native-born engineers, scientists and mathematicians. There are clear steps that we can take to make sure that our talent base is not only strong but is fully utilized and making sure that we have the opportunities for talented young people coming along in the next generation. Governments across the globe have gotten wise to the fact that finding and attracting talented individuals is a key way to harness innovation and tap into economic growth. Edward Luce writes for the Financial Times. Luce says he sees an across-the-board shift by governments to value innovative thinkers. For the simple reason, I think, that the way the global economy is moving, the way value is added in today's world is really through intellectual property, it's through intangible assets, it's through intellectual capital. It's not through physical capital, it's not through land, it's through technology, and that's all about people and skills. And so it's no accident the world's been moving that way, and it's been a great surprise given that the US is home of the most dynamic innovation and of immigration as uh, almost as a national creed, that the US is really a laggard in this respect. Luce agrees with the many economists and business leaders who say the U.S. is missing a very large chunk of entrepreneurial thinkers in areas such as advanced manufacturing. That's where, he says, foreign talent comes in. They tend to be a lot more entrepreneurial. They tend to be much stronger in the science, physics and mathematics area, which is one of the areas where there are big shortages in the American economy. This is what's known as STEM workers. 
people who are strong in science, technology, engineering, and math. Many foreigners are well-trained in these areas. And they tend to be more inventive. So the chances of a, a foreign visa holder generating a patent in the U.S. is a multiple what it is for a native-born American. And that would be true anywhere in the world, as immigrants tend to be more inventive and entrepreneurial. So there are all sorts of other spin-off effects to raising the proportion of skilled immigrants in the U.S. than just the simple one of addressing existing real-time skill shortages. There are many other spin-offs to this, uh, on which really the, so much of the American story is anyway built. So, you know, it shouldn't take somebody in my accent to, to make that point. A 2011 study by Jennifer Hunt, now the chief economist at the Department of Labor, argues that immigrants are more likely to start companies than native-born Americans. And immigrants who entered on a student trainee visa or temporary work visa have a large advantage over natives in wages, patenting, and publishing. Thomas Koken, the George Maverick Bunker Professor of Management at MIT's Sloan School of Management, agrees foreign-born entrepreneurs are important because they are very highly talented, very highly motivated, they often come out with ideas that, if allowed to develop, can create new enterprises, and the evidence is quite clear that they're successful in high proportions in doing so. So we have to really revise our immigration policies to make that more possible, to make that more feasible, so we not only uh, keep the people that we have here, but we create more of a motivation for more of that kind of talent to come and uh, seek out education here because they see a way of then applying their ideas and building on them, even if in the long run they are only here for a period of time, then go back and do some things in their home country, you get then this circular migration of ideas, resources, people, and opportunities that helps all parts of the world. But some countries that have traditionally sent high numbers of talented immigrants to the United States may not be sending as many anymore. Generally, immigrants from India have had a higher rate of entrepreneurship than groups from other countries. And compared to a decade ago, it seems more Indian entrepreneurs want to stay home than want to come here to the States. Bianca Vasquez-Tones reports. When we think of brilliant foreigners working in the high-tech industry in the U.S., chances are we will think of engineers and computer whizzes from India. So what do we import from India? We import people really smart people. This story aired on 60 Minutes 10 years ago. The reporter goes on to say that many of those smart people graduated from the same school. The most successful, most influential Indians who've migrated to the U.S. seem to share a common credential. They're graduates of the Indian Institute of Technology, better known as IIT. 31-year-old Meg Solanki is one of those smart IIT graduates. The only thing is, he hasn't left India. I caught up with this aspiring entrepreneur outside a restaurant in his manicured Mumbai suburb. He says the job opportunities in India are too good to leave. Look at finance, look at insurance, look at manufacturing. Everywhere, the jobs are so many. Solanki works for the American insurance giant AIG. It's one of the many multinational companies, or MNCs, here in Mumbai. He makes a handsome salary, lives alone, and eats out three times a week, something his family never did. He has a comfortable life, but is determined to start his own online company, something his parents never would have done. 
if I had told my parents five, seven years ago that I want to quit my job and start something of my own, take the huge risk, they might not have been okay with that. So now they are totally supportive of the fact you should try and do something new. You should try and create some more jobs. The perception has completely changed. Is that because you've been working on them or is that because the world around them is changing the and there's... It's changing. The entire mentality is changing. So for example, seven, eight years ago, it was very cool to work with an MNC. Right now, it's much cooler to work with a startup. It's hard to measure just how cool it is to work for an MNC or startup. But if you go back to IIT, it's clear that getting to America is no longer at the top of the to-do list. Maybe 20, 25 years back, almost the whole class used to go for grad school in the U.S. Professor Avijit Chatterjee heads job placement for the IIT campus in Mumbai. Now, he says, only about 10% of recent graduates move to the U.S. The rest stay and get jobs with multinationals, or increasingly, they become entrepreneurs. Oh, these guys are going to strike out on their own in India as opposed to, say, California, Silicon Valley, which was the trend maybe. So they are looking at India-specific problems because I think uh, they perceive uh, a lot of untapped opportunities in India. But still, not every aspiring entrepreneur is satisfied by those opportunities. Going to states is something which I never really explored. So it's only been at the start of 2012 that I've started to weigh that option. 33-year-old Avinash Singh analyzes stocks and writes reports for investors. He loves equity finance research. But in India, the industry is new. So he's trying to land a job in New York, where the industry was born. But he says the odds aren't good. If a country has 7, 7.5, 8% unemployment rate, why would they want to have someone from a different country? And they would rather hire someone internally. So I have to be much better than what options they have from internal resources. I should bring something really incredibly brilliant to the table that they should even start to consider talking to me or, or interviewing me, basically. So if Singh does get to work in the States, his plan is not to stay forever. He wants to learn the equity finance business in America and take what he learns back to India. There, he wants to start his own business. For America Abroad, this is Bianca Basquez-Tonas. Concern about the United States' ability to attract entrepreneurial talent is reflected in several expert studies, which show a drop in the proportion of immigrant-founded companies. So what does the United States do about this? One answer may be to look at and learn from what other countries are doing to attract the best immigrant entrepreneurs. Countries as diverse as Ireland and Chile have taken very aggressive positions on luring foreign entrepreneurs to their shores. I recently visited Ireland to see how the place was doing after suffering a crippling recession in 2008. I'm asking just a general cross-section of people how they think the economy's doing. How does it look to you? Well, I guess we've had our ups and downs. It's uh, fallen from a height, but that was five years ago. It's, it's something's got to be getting better soon. The global recession had a terrible effect on Ireland. Once strong from the banking, tech, and export sectors, all of them suffered huge job losses during the downturn. Construction projects were halted in midstream, and many Irish were buried by the same mortgage debt seen here in the U.S. It was hard to change, to actually spend differently, or not spend, yeah. you know, as the case may be. You kind of get used to it then, and then it's as if it's normal now, pairing back all of the time, you know? 
So things aren't perfect yet here in Ireland, but its economy is showing signs of recovery. Here's a startling fact. Last year, around 13,000 businesses were started in Ireland. That's in a country of around 4.5 million people. And it's on pace for the same to happen this year. On the Enterprise Ireland side, they have a vast range of supports, but financially would be one of the key supports initially for a company. Kira Leonard is one of the people keeping her eye on attracting foreign entrepreneurial talent into Ireland. She's the program manager of Nova UCD. It's the University College of Dublin's business incubator program. It works in conjunction with a government program called Enterprise Ireland. And they have a very successful program set up a number of years ago called the Competitive Start Fund, which the company gives €5,000 and Enterprise Ireland matches that with €50,000 in equity funding. And it's competitive, but it's very much pitched to early stage startups. The way these business incubators, as well as Enterprise Ireland, work is to take government funds, taxpayer money, and use those funds to seed new businesses. The next stage then, if a company moves on, they can get something which is called high potential startup funding. And that's for companies that, and Enterprise Ireland very much focused on companies that are export-led, you know, doing maybe R&D, and have the potential to create employment in Ireland. And the next funding, you can get up to 300,000 normally on average from Enterprise Ireland and equity investment, and you match that with a private investor. Leonard says her incubator also recognises it's often harder for startups to get what are called softer supports. Setting up a company is a very lonely journey for an entrepreneur and therefore being part of an incubator and an entrepreneurial community is very, very important so the entrepreneur isn't re reinventing the wheel. We provide fast range support, everything from facilitated linkages to expert researchers in the university to advice on business planning, government grants, introductions to investors. Who said, hey, we ought to encourage people to innovate and start businesses. It mainly came from the university and even in, as far back as the early 90s, the university decided that it was necessary to support startup companies. And in the later 90s, early 2000s, the government also supported a number of incubators around the country, mainly those based at university campuses and institutes of technology. The incubation services from the late 90s have always supported both companies coming directly from university research, which we call spin-out companies, and equally companies coming from outside the university. So these incubator programs in Ireland service both native-born Irish as well as foreign-born entrepreneurs. According to Leonard, at least a quarter of the incubator business in her program came from outside of Ireland. These immigrants tend to have higher levels of education and depth of study. You know, we've Italians here, we've got people from India who've come here um, for different reasons, maybe initially, but decided to, to set up a company in Ireland and benefit from the supports. I don't know, seven more. We have a son here, he's an Irish citizen. Abhinav Chug has started a couple of companies so far. One, VideoCrisp, enables businesses to more easily create videos for their websites. In simple words, if you are a business, you could be a solicitor, you could be a sales guy, you could be a marketing person, you could be a dentist. If you have a website, you have a need of a video because if you don't have a video, you don't appear on top of Google, people are less likely to click on you. Chug came to Dublin from India, and he found it to be an ideal place to start up, even over Silicon Valley. Why do it in Ireland? Is Ireland a particularly good place to do what you just did. 
Yes, it's really amazing. It's what I call Silicon Valley of Europe. The, the number one reason is Enterprise Ireland. I don't think anywhere else in the world there is a government agency like a, a lifesaver for businesses. They have funding, they have support, they give you all the support for sales. Both of my startups have been clients of Enterprise Ireland. We have got funding from them, we have got mentorship, we have got sales support, everything what we needed at the right time. If we look at the business you've created, the jobs you've created. Have you been a good deal for the Irish taxpayer? Yes, absolutely. So we have uh, raised uh, till now around 100K and we are in the process of raising another $1 million. And the very first thing we are aiming to do with that money, which is the taxpayer's money, is to create 10 jobs by end of 2013. So we believe that if we are raising uh, the money which basically belongs to the taxpayer, we obviously need to give in return and that comes through the jobs that we are creating. So Videocris will have 10 full-time employees in Ireland by end of 2013 because of the funding that we are raising now, half of which is Enterprise Ireland's or you can say taxpayer's money. Yeah. <laughs> Even in the less cutting edge sector of food, skilled labor can be important. Marta Gutierrez is from Spain, and even though she's not an owner of Brother Hubbard's, a cafe specializing in local Irish ingredients, with fare prepared from scratch, she's still a key employee. When it was quiet at the beginning, we would be a bit scared, because you think, oh my God, maybe we're not doing it right. We're... But we are, we make everything here, we make everything with love and passion. I think we're, we're doing everything right. Gutierrez and owner Garrett Fitzgerald stress that new businesses are important to the Irish economy, not just because they produce, but because they also employ other businesses. We do try and use, to the extent that we can, local suppliers and uh, Irish products, so all our cheeses are Irish, for example, our meats, all of that. The one thing we don't make ourselves is our bread, and we get that from a little artisan bakery that's just down the road and things like that. So. I guess I feel together we'll prosper. You know, the better we can sell their product, the more of it we'll sell, and that's good for them and it's good for us. But there are still risks to a fragile, if recovering, Irish economy. Richard Bruton is the Irish Minister for Jobs, Enterprise, and Innovation. We have a pretty vibrant environment for startup, but the constraints on finance caused by the bank crisis has been a problem. So we're seeking to replace that, make sure that the environment for startup is strong. And I think that's been part of our strategy as well. Several times people have said to me, yes, it is cheap to borrow money if you can get a loan. There's a reluctance to lend, so that makes it tough to take advantage of these low interest rates. Yeah, that's true. I mean, our banks are very risk averse. They're trying to manage down a loan book that got far too big and they're trying to recover losses on that loan book. And that has made them very averse to taking risk. If you look across the Eurozone, I think we're the second highest refusal rate of loans in Europe. Now that is coming down, but we still are one of the worst economies for getting access to credit. Avina McNally says even with these obstacles, the country is committed to turning around the entrepreneurship picture. She's the director of Ireland's Small Firms Association. One thing we're still calling for is a national entrepreneurship policy. We don't actually have a formal policy, and that I think is a big challenge for us, and it's something we really need to do. Um, we are actually, I think, ninth out of the 28 OECD countries in relation to the ease of setting up a business here in Ireland. And the government are very much committed to Ireland being the best place to do business, I think, by the year of 2018. It's one thing to revive a flagging economy like Ireland's, 
particularly when a program like Enterprise Ireland is well-established, it's another thing to try to build a Silicon Valley from scratch. That's exactly what Chile, for the past two and a half years or so, has been trying to do. And this Startup Chile program sounds like the absolute perfect place that I would have loved to go where they give you just a little help, a little help in terms of resources and a friendly environment and, and welcoming entrepreneurs. So um, I think this is just the, the greatest program I've seen of its type in the world. The program has earned praise from the likes of Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, among other proponents of startups worldwide. It was created because the founder of the idea was finishing his MBA in Stanford and he realized that a lot of immigrants were with super interesting projects there and they haven't had the chance to finish their projects because they needed to come back to their countries because of the lack of immigrant policies in the States. Sebastián Vidal is the associate director of Startup Chile, a program not unlike Enterprise Ireland. He says that before Startup Chile, the support structure for startups was, well, non-existent. The entrepreneurial environment in terms of innovation and technology was not developed at all. But Startup Chile seems to be slowly but surely changing the landscape. One of the main goals of Startup Chile is to increase the entrepreneurial ecosystem of Chile. That's why we give some certain benefits to the entrepreneurs that we bring to Chile, but they need to give back to the country. And how do they do it? They give talk they give mentorship, they give uh, conferences all around Chile, uh, spreading the word about entrepreneurship. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm Nathan Lustig, and I'm an entrepreneur who's working on a couple of different things in, in Latin America. I'm teaching entrepreneurship at two universities here in Chile and uh, looking at opportunities to start something new. Nathan Lustig was one of the first entrepreneurs to take advantage of the Startup Chile program. He joined in its pilot phase. So in 2010, I was sitting with my business partner in Madison. Uh, we had just graduated from university and we were looking to escape the Wisconsin winter with our startup. And we were looking at uh, California, New York, Austin, Texas, and I saw an article in Forbes that said Chile was giving $40,000 to entrepreneurs to come move there for six months, and we applied, made it, and that's how we arrived in Chile. Lustig's company, Entrusted, helps customers set up a sort of digital will. You can either pass on or delete your files and online records when you die. Though he partly chose Chile as a place to start up because of the cash, and partly out of a sense of adventure, he soon saw the advantage of doing business in Latin America. The big advantages of Latin America is that it's generally between three and ten years behind the U.S. and Europe in terms of internet adoption and, and, and products that are really popular in the U.S. Uh, might not be popular in Latin America yet. The other thing is that there's not very much competition, whereas in the U.S., if you have a pretty good idea, there's going to be a hundred companies trying to copy you and do the same thing. In Latin America, it's way less. There's not as much competition. When Startup Chile was founded, Chileans weren't that used to the idea that someone would want to go into business for themselves rather than working for a large, established company. But, says Lustig, that's changing. Generally, entrepreneurship is not very supported. It's kind of looked down on. People are conservative. They'd rather work for a big company rather than start out on their own. It's changed really a lot, and part of that is from Startup Chile, part of it is from foreign entrepreneurs. And according to Sebastián Vidal, 
Chileans are being drawn more and more, by influence of foreign entrepreneurs, into the idea of starting their own businesses. Today, the most important percentage of applications in Startup Chile, mainly, is Chileans. So 40% of the applications are Chileans. That still means 60% of applicants to the Startup Chile program are foreigners, many of whom are Americans, looking to branch out from the competitive startup hubs of Silicon Valley, Austin, and the like. But there are some detractors to the sorts of programs Ireland and Chile are promoting. Some question whether government should be in the business of subsidizing businesses. I feel that the government shouldn't be in the business of actually granting grants for private businesses. The government is a very crappy venture capitalist, as we've seen over and over and over again. Veronique de Rougy is a senior research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. She says there are risks and a real downside when the government rushes to give government breaks for certain industries or companies, as the U.S. has seen recently with the failure of solar energy companies like Solyndra. She argues that any economy, for startups as well as established companies, would be better off with a level playing field. But the thing is that taxpayers should actually really be against is the fact that the government picks winners and losers. And very often, a lot of these government policies that are supposed to help businesses, whether they're startups or whether they're meant for bigger businesses, they pick government-friendly, politically connected businesses. And that really destroys the level playing field. Why should one firm get some sort of government-granted privilege, whether it's a tax rebate, whether it's a um, lighter regulation, whether it's a loan guaranteed, while another company who's less connected or not connected at all will have to actually evolve in a completely or start in a completely different environment. So what's the alternative? According to Deruji, a level playing field in which government was hands-off would be more ideal. The right way to go would be actually to create an environment that promotes all businesses, not just one type. Because a lot of these government policies, they're actually designed in a way that is specific to certain industries or enterprise of a certain uh, size. The way to go is to actually create an environment where taxes are low for everyone, regulations are light, stable, clear, and easy to understand, and also constant. And, says Deruji, economies like Ireland's may be taking a bigger risk than they realize with taxpayer money. When the government guarantees a loan to a business that then ends up going under, taxpayers have to foot the bill. Very often also, taxpayers have to foot bigger bills at a time where it's worse for them. So during recessions, you have more of small businesses or weak government-sponsored project that go under, and that's right when taxpayers are actually feeling weak. But according to Nathan Lustig, government money spent on private enterprise is a wise investment. If you look at the scale of how much money that they've spent to bring thousands of entrepreneurs to Chile, create jobs, and most of that money gets just recycled back into the economy in the form of rent, food, hiring people, and just spending to run your business, it's one of the cheapest and most cost-effective government programs that are out there. So for now, Chile and Ireland are set on attracting and encouraging the best entrepreneurial talent they can muster. And time will tell how long it will take for these programs to pay off.
For more on Ireland's boom, bust, and recovery, and the role played by entrepreneurs in that recovery, visit our website, americaabroad.org, and watch a report co-produced with the PBS NewsHour. I'm Ray Suarez, and you're listening to Immigration and the Global Talent Search from America Abroad. Though many countries are pushing hard to recruit the best and brightest from abroad, there are a few critics who argue the U.S. has nothing to worry about in the race for global talent. I spoke to Ron Hira, Associate Professor of Public Policy at RIT, the Rochester Institute of Technology. In your view, is the United States losing the global race for highly skilled entrepreneurial talent? No, I don't think we're losing the race. I think that we're doing just fine. We have a lot of active policies to encourage entrepreneurship, both here as well as for immigrants. A lot of countries around the world are trying to design new policies, incentives, access to easy loans, taxpayer money. Is there a bidding war now for the brightest and the best? There may be a little bit of a bidding war, but I don't think it's a problem. I think more entrepreneurship around the world is a good thing. So what should the United States government be doing? Should it let the private market work its own magic? What's the best posture for a government that wants to encourage people who have a bankable idea to come here rather than go somewhere else? Well, I think we already have a pretty uh, robust regime. If you follow at all the foreign student numbers, for example, there's still large inflows of students coming in from India and China and, and other countries. So I think we're a very attractive place. I think there may be some changes that we need to make in terms of our green card process, but I don't think there's any fundamental problems in terms of uh, immigration and entrepreneurship or, more broadly, uh, entrepreneurship within the U.S. Well, haven't we kept some of those students in the past almost by default? Tech students from China and India stayed here or tried to stay here after graduation just because things weren't very promising back home. But now India and China may be good places to go and they'll leave after we educate them to a high standard. People are mistaking sort of the causal effects here. The, the reason that they're going back is because that there are huge opportunities overseas, and that's mostly because of the offshoring of American jobs and American technology by U.S.-based companies. For example, uh, in, in the case of India, uh, IBM now has more workers in India than they do in the U.S. The opportunities are growing much faster in India than they are in the U.S., so it's a pretty natural move for people like my cousins to go back uh, rather than stay. It's a matter of job opportunities, not really a, a question of policies around entrepreneurship. Oh, so there's really, in your view, not much that we could do to get those kids to stay? No, I think we're already keeping a lot of them. It's not around entrepreneurship. I think the main changes need to be about a path towards permanent residence. And once they have permanent residence, then they can become entrepreneurs fairly easily. Giving out more green cards to entrepreneurs is one of the few areas where there is widespread agreement in America's polarized immigration debate. We'll come back to Ron Hira, but we pause for a moment to give a sense of what life is like for immigrant workers who come here on a temporary H-1B visa. We hear this personal story from a highly skilled German. My name is Jens Watzowick, and I'm a research associate studying brain diseases at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And I got my H-1B in October 2012. My wife was actually the first to go to the U.S. She came in 2005, and we have a daughter and a son, both kids born here in the U.S. 
and both are US citizens. Unfortunately, my wife had to go back and um, start a residency in Denmark. So my family moves back and forth between the US and Denmark. And of course, I'm really missing my family and I'm just waiting for them to come back. That is really <laughs> the major thing in my life that I'm waiting for. What people don't know is that it is actually quite stressful to be on, a, on any kind of visa status. You are definitely restricted. It's time limited. And if anything happens to your working contract, that could be really horrible because you have to leave the country more or less immediately and move back to wherever you're coming from. And that would mean also your kids have to leave the country, whether they're U.S. citizens, whether they go to U.S. schools, whether we have a house, an apartment or anything, and that's really a threat. Sometimes when people get a green card, they say, oh, I got my freedom, because they can stay here, they can apply for any kind of jobs. They don't have this threat in their back that if something happens to their employment, they have to leave the country. And that is definitely freedom. I am definitely interested in getting a green card, but as of right now, it's too expensive for me. The ideal future would be that we would live all together as a family in one place and spend the rest of our lives here in the US. I mean, we could just change our, our origin a little bit and become Americans. That's, that's how I feel. Ron Hira, Associate Professor of Public Policy at RIT, well, you've been pretty critical of the design of the major programs in this area, the H-1B and the L-1 visas. What are the problems? Well, the H-1B and L-1 visas are used largely to bring in cheaper indentured workers. And that's outside the letter, but also, the more importantly, the spirit of what those programs are uh, supposed to be designed for. You know, in this context, indenture is a pretty strong word. It implies that these workers are not free actors. What makes this like indentured servitude to you? Well, it's an employer-driven system, so the visa's not held by the worker. The visa's held by the employer. And because the employers can pay below market wages, they have every incentive to keep the worker sort of under wraps. So workers do have some limited mobility on the H-1B, but it's pretty limited, Basically, the worker is tied or indentured to that employer. Once they get a green card, of course, they can become much more mobile. But can they even look for other work if they're here under the auspices of one employer in particular? Yeah, they can. Under limited circumstances, they can switch employers, but they'd have to get an employer to sponsor them for an H-1B. And that does happen, but not very much. So the reality is that most of these folks are really tied to their employers, who then can, besides legally pay them below market wages, ask them to do things. If someone complains about their job or about their working conditions, the employer can threaten them. If they lay them off, they'll be out of status and will have to leave the country. Recently, I was in Ireland and met a young Indian-born engineer who had come to work for an Irish-based tech multinational, but decided along the way that he had an idea that he'd like to start up himself he was able to get Irish government encouragement, space to act as an incubator for his business, and grants, which were then followed by soft-term loans. Could that happen in the United States? 
I think if we change the law, I would fully support changing policy to encourage that kind of activity. But we should certainly encourage the entrepreneurship. But it's not the big problem here in terms of high-scale immigration. And I think it's a problem when we project every single tech worker, every single guest worker coming in as being this entrepreneur. I think there's a larger issue, too, which is this one about hoping that entrepreneurship is somehow going to be our panacea or our savior. In reality, it's large companies that employ large numbers of people and are very innovative. Others agree. While supporting entrepreneurs is a good thing, that it's the large companies, not so much small ones, that are driving innovation in the U.S. Well, it, there's a long history of that. MIT's Thomas Koken is the George Maverick Bunker Professor of Management and MIT's Sloan School of Management. The Bell Labs, the Xerox Parks, IBM Research Laboratories were incubators of a lot of the modern high-tech industry. Unfortunately, those large firms have reduced their emphasis on that kind of R&D, and we don't have as much of that as we used to have. Tom Koken says we will still have the Googles and others like them that are doing a lot to generate products and services, but... We need to get back to a situation where we have the equivalent of the Bell Labs that are really generating all kinds of new spin-off ideas that produce sustainable organizations and keep their own industries innovating. And that's a real resource that the U.S. needs to recreate and the big companies need to recreate. And unfortunately, we don't have as much of that right now as we need. Like many experts, Thomas Koken believes the evidence is clear that immigrant entrepreneurs help the U.S. economy. But he also wants the U.S. to focus on strengthening its STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math programs here at home. America still has an enormously talented workforce and an enormously talented young population potentially ready to take the next generation of high-skilled, high-technology jobs and professions. We simply have to invest in them in the colleges. We have to encourage them to get the right kind of skills and right kind of technical training and the right kind of degrees. And then firms in the United States need to reach out to the universities to build the networks that we know work to hire those individuals and continue with uh, lifelong learning to keep their skills current. So I don't think we are going to lose the race for talent unless we lose it by design, by the design of companies that say we'd rather just outsource this work to other countries and other organizations. And if we do it, we're doing it to ourselves. Koken argues that if we can continue to provide opportunities for college graduates, whether they're domestic or foreign-born, we will grow our economy. He's also untroubled by the fact that more foreigners, such as Indians, are staying home and working in good jobs. I think it's inevitable. Clearly, with all the modern communication technology, it's not clear that a, a skilled worker in India needs to come to the United States simply to develop deeper skills or to get so familiar with the unique technology of a particular firm or industry. So I think it's becoming easier to build these skills on a global basis, and I think that makes the H-1B visa probably less attractive to individuals. Are you an immigrant entrepreneur? What challenges did you encounter in starting a business? Tell us your story. Find America Abroad on Facebook or send us a tweet at America underscore abroad. I'm Ray Suarez, 
and you're listening to Immigration and the Global Talent Search from America Abroad. Without changes to America's visa system, those many bright young immigrants who do want to stay in the U.S. will not. To discuss the problem, I spoke with tech entrepreneur Vivek Wadwa, vice president of innovation and research at Singularity University and author of The Immigrant Exodus, Why America is Losing the Global Race to Capture Entrepreneurial Talent, and Robert Lighton, Director of Research at Bloomberg Government. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi there. Welcome. We've asked a few people on the program already whether the United States is losing the race for global entrepreneurial talent and whether we should be concerned. Vivek Wadwa, how do you answer that? Well, you have to go abroad to see what's happening. Go to India, China, go to any of the big cities there, go to Brazil, and you see the buzz of activity. When you start meeting the people over there, you realize that many of them, as many as a third or sometimes a half of them, are returnees from the United States. And they'll tell you about the frustrations they faced in America and why they left the country that they wanted to be part of. For example? For example, uh, in India, uh, there are two or three companies which are elected to be the Indian Amazon, which were founded by returnees. These are people that uh, that I've mentored and I've helped. Uh, one of my students, uh, Shurikan Chanduri, has also gone there and started a company which I think is going to be uh, a billion-dollar company within the next five years or so. He wanted to be in the United States. He was frustrated that he couldn't get a visa, that when he went for job interviews, employers wouldn't even talk to him because he was on an H-1B visa. So he just left, and he's doing very well back home. Robert Lighton, should we be concerned in this country when we hear stories like that? Absolutely, because if you look at the trend of new firm formation, it's been down since the recession. We used to have around 600,000 firms formed a year. It's fallen to around 400,000. That's due to lack of capital. It's obviously due to lack of risk-taking. But we can use all the entrepreneurs we can get. And one of the things we know from the data is that immigrants have a higher propensity to form businesses than native-born Americans. And we also know from Vivek's research that fully 25% of successful high-tech startups in America were founded or co-founded by immigrants. And fully 40% of the uh, leaders of the Fortune 500 today are either immigrants or sons or daughters of immigrants. So uh, we need all the help we can get. And you've got other countries like Chile who are actually paying people to come to their country to become entrepreneurs. Uh, Not that I would ever suggest an autarky where we try to satisfy all our own needs on shore. But if we were doing a better job here training up the entrepreneurs and inventors of the future, would this be such an issue? I would argue that we would still want as much foreign talent as we can get it because innovation thrives in diversity. You know, this is like one state trying to say, can we, can we uh, grow our own NFL players? The fact is that you want to bring in the best from everywhere and have your players compete. That's the only way you're going to create world-class teams. So we want that diversity that immigration brings. Robert Lighton, how much more should the United States do in terms of developing startup incubator programs, of the sort we've heard about earlier in the program. Uh, Government-sponsored startups such as uh, Enterprise Ireland and Startup Chile, are they a model for the United States or really too small to amount to much when you're talking about an economy the size of ours? Well, Startup Chile is actually not so much an incubator. It's just basically a mechanism to get the best entrepreneurial talent into Chile. They actually pay them. But when most people talk about incubators, they're talking about Um, all the kinds of programs that you see all over the country that, in a way, uh, have nothing to do with government. For example, 
Um, you have all kinds of programs in Silicon Valley and Austin and all other kinds of high-tech hubs where basically you have buildings that uh, offer free space, and then you've got mentors and helpers that encourage entrepreneurs to uh, do their thing. And I think the more of this stuff, uh, the better. And frankly, I'm not sure you need government to do it. Vivek, is this a uh, an important place for government to be making policy and indeed putting some money behind this? Or can the marketplace take care of a lot of these questions by itself? Ray, you know, the Startup Chile program, I designed it. I saw an opportunity for Chile to take advantage of America's stupidity, is what I called it, because we're chasing away brilliant people. Now, the good news for us is that we don't need to do that. Everyone wants to come here. So all the government has to do is to get out of the way. Right now, the government is a barrier. It's an, it's an inhibitor. If it would only just get out of the way, let companies hire the people that they desperately need, and let entrepreneurs in America do their magic as they always do, this economy would be thriving. So the answer is stay out of the way and let us do our magic. <laughs> you say that while we're in the middle of a, an intense debate over the future of immigration law in this country. Can we design an architecture that distinguishes between one kind of worker and another and makes sure that the United States attracts enough of both kinds, high skill and low skill? Yeah, actually, uh, sure we can. Um, the fact that the the undocumented worker issue, uh, and there are about 11 million of them, has been tied to the issue of importing high-skilled talent has been purely an, a political artifact. Democrats uh, in Congress um, have more or less held hostage the high-skilled uh, liberalization in order to get either a pathway to citizenship or at least some documentation for the existing undocumented workers. Uh, Republicans up to this point, as you know, haven't displayed much interest uh, in doing anything about undocumented workers, and they've just focused on high-skilled. But they were, of course, scared out of their wits by the 2012 election. There's some optimism that this bill is going to move forward, but there are features in this bill that would um, establish a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented would liberalize uh, the uh, rules for highly educated workers, and at least would make a start to let more entrepreneurs uh, from foreign countries in. Well, if, Robert Lighton, as you suggest, circumstances have created a space for us to at least talk about how to fix the immigration system, what would a redesigned H-1B program look like? Um, well, first, let's be clear for our listeners to explain what an H-1B is. It's a temporary visa for up to six years, it can be renewed. Um, it's focused on uh, skilled people, but mostly they're people from India and China who have, uh, who have tech skills. There are a lot of things wrong with the H-1B program, in my view. But I would like to see some kind of mechanism that will allow these temporary workers to stay here and then apply to become entrepreneurs uh, without such high monetary thresholds. Because right now, under the Gang of Eight proposal, you have to show that you are bringing in at least $100,000 to support your enterprise or that your enterprise has $250,000 in revenue. These are very high targets. And Vivek is right. You know, other things equal. We'd rather have these people start these companies here than there. You were both talking about the inflexibilities in the H-1B system. If a worker who is legally in the United States under an H-1B comes up with an idea that they believe might make a lot of money and they want to spin it off into their own business, can they do it? Or are there impediments built into their status while they're here on an H-1B? Vivek? The funny thing is that you can start a company if you're on an H-1B visa. You can't work for it. 
So this happens to my students all the time. <laughs> it's really bizarre. I well, mean, you'd have to reapply, actually. I mean, well, it's, it's uh, so complicated. You have to have a board of directors. You can't own more than X percent of the company. It is so cumbersome that I know students who've tried, they just got frustrated and said, we'll just leave and start our company somewhere else. Many of them went to Chile. Others went to Brazil. Others went to New Delhi. They just left the country out of frustration. So, Robert Lighton, by definition, that would be an impediment to immigrant entrepreneurship, straight up. Yeah, no kidding. It's, I mean, of course, it's ridiculous. And if you're going to invent this new thing you're talking about, you're working for Intel, I mean, Intel's going to get it. There, there is an out. I mean, you can make an application, but you're going to be held up for a while. And if you're trying to raise money, who's going to give you money when your immigrant status is subject to question? So, yeah, we penalize people for starting new businesses. And Now, let me just defend the companies for a minute because the companies, of course, that are taking these workers in are paying for all the costs. And they actually, under the Gang of Eight proposal, they have to pay even higher fees. Oh, and there's one other thing that we haven't talked about. There's an additional requirement that the companies show that they're paying the H-1B holder, quote, significantly more than they would uh, pay an American worker. And if that number is a very large number, we could actually see a decrease in the number of people brought in. So uh, a lot of this is subject to a lot of uncertainty. Is our NAFTA partner and next-door neighbor Canada doing it any better? They have a point system. The plan has been talked about uh, by some as a better way to evaluate and attract entrepreneurial talent than the system in the United States. Robert Lighton, Canadians doing it better? Yes. Number one is they have a much more welcoming uh, policy toward entrepreneurs. And number two, to, uh, to high-skilled talent. There was an article on Bloomberg.com, our free website, an amazing story about how the Canadian Immigration Service went out and they're looking for workers in areas where there are job shortages. And they found this guy in Atlanta who was unemployed, but he was a mechanic who had skills. I don't know how they found him. And they flew him to the western part of Canada, and he was uh, offered a job making $100,000 a year. He's quoted at the end of the story of saying it felt like he hit the lottery. He got a $100,000 a year job. He got health insurance in Canada. He's happy as a clam. And Canada is actively looking for people with skills where there are shortages. You know, the funny thing is this Canadian Minister of Immigration is coming here in, in a couple of weeks to speak to Silicon Valley entrepreneurs about moving over to Canada. They're actively marketing themselves and saying, come and stay here. We want you. Forget about America. We want you. Vivek Wadwa is a tech entrepreneur, academic, and researcher based out of Silicon Valley. And Robert Lighton is the director of research for Bloomberg Government. This hour, Immigration and the Global Talent Search was produced by Samara Freemark, Bianca Vasquez-Tonis, and A.C. Valdez, and edited by Martha Little with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Calm Coyne. You can hear this and past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Ray Suarez, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this program was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. This program was also made possible by the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation and the Stewart Family Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.